You are listening to the 519 Church Podcast with lead pastor Owen Barrow. 519 Church is a new church seeking to fulfill Christ's calling to love well and live differently. For more information and service times, please visit 519church.org. We have been, for the last few weeks, and we'll continue for the next few, um, in a series called Masks. One of the things that we recognize about ourselves is that uh, we are not people who like to be vulnerable. Uh, We're not people who like for others to see our insecurities or our shortcomings in any way. And one of the ways in which we handle that discomfort is to put on a facade, to wear a mask. Um, And these masks, while they make us feel more comfortable, uh, ultimately break down our ability to relate with each other and ultimately to relate with God. What we see in our God is a God who operates primarily through vulnerability. I mean, really, that's the story we tell at Lent. That's the story of Easter, is that God was willing to be vulnerable enough uh, to risk sort of not having his love returned to him. That's the story that we tell in Jesus. Jesus came to his people. His people did not receive him. Um, in fact, they killed him. Um, that's how little they actually received him. We see God's power ultimately operating through God's vulnerability. Typically, when we think of power, we think of the ability to control, coerce, or influence another without their ability to control, coerce, or influence us. Um, And that's how we typically conceive of power, but that power is actually built on a deep sense of insecurity that you might not be powerful enough. You're always scrambling to keep up this image of power. And yet we see God operating through as a a type of power that is not controlled by insecurity, but is, is really free. And the invitation we've been making every week is to take off the mask, to experience some vulnerability, so that we can have access to the power that God offers us uh, to be at work for his kingdom in this world. Which is a pretty high challenge. It's a pretty high challenge. This week, um, we're going to be talking about one of the masks that I think we all wear in our culture. And when I say our culture, I mean the people specifically in this area of this state, of this nation, in this place. Um, a mask that we wear very predominantly. And it's the mask of self-sufficiency. Um, and I've been in my mind as we've come to this week sort of tap dancing a little bit, tiptoeing around uh, because I feel like this is one of those times where I can maybe overstep a little bit too far um, instead of just stepping on toes, maybe break some, and I really don't want to break anyone's toes. Uh, but I think that for all of us, um, this mask that we wear of self-sufficiency, a, a mask that says, I've got it, a mask that says I, I'm able to provide what I need, I don't need help from anyone else, Um, A mask that um, sort of presents to the world a person who is certain and who has all the answers that they need. Uh, This is this is our this is our people's mask. I mean, this is this is us. This is us. And this mask, I believe, can be has the potential to be one of the most destructive, especially when it comes to the ways in which we relate uh, to God. This mask of self sufficiency that we wear, I, I think, is in some ways. Um, the root of a lot of the pain that we silently experience in our wealthy, well-educated world. Uh, Because we have, underneath this facade that we put up of self-sufficiency, a deep, deep anxiety. An anxiety that maybe we're not as good as we're telling everybody that we are. Um, And that becomes very weighty for us. Um, and I think, and we won't talk about the, the outcomes of that, that's not my point, but um, 
I think the outflow of that anxiety sometimes looks really, really ugly in our community. Uh, but I want to talk about not the outcome of the mask, but what it might take for us to be able to break through that, that mask, that facade of self-sufficiency that we put up. I think we put it up um, because we're afraid. The world is a big place. <laughs> the world is a big place, and uh, it's awesome. Awesome is one of those words that we have a positive connotation of. Everything is awesome, right? I mean, even the Legos people understand that. Um, but awesome also has a connotation of, of fear. Awesome is powerful and wonderful and beautiful, but it's also like too big for us to control or contain. The world is an awesome place, and therefore in this world, um, there are lots of things for us to fear. And whenever we get in a place where we don't have all the answers, whenever we get in a place where we've got things that are too big for us to control, uh, we have this thing that we do as people that makes it not as scary for us. We construct narratives of certainty that help us contain the fear. Let me give you some silly examples of how we do that and then perhaps some more poignant ones. Um, I think I've shared maybe both of these with you before in different contexts, but um, when I was growing up, I was afraid of storms. Storms are awesome. Uh, they're powerful. Uh, when I was very young, uh, I used to love to watch storms. My dad taught me how to sit in our glass-surrounded room and to watch the lightning. It was something we did together. Um, and I can remember one time uh, watching out the front window as this, this huge storm was sort of rolling through and trees were twisting and turning, um, not rocking back and forth, mind you, but twisting and turning. Um, and I saw one in front of my face literally snap off halfway up and fell against our house. And I feel like if it had fallen maybe another foot, one way or the other, um, I would, my face would, would look very di- different. Uh, I was standing right by a window, and the branches hit the side of the window. They just didn't break it. Um, and after that moment, I was no longer really interested in watching storms. Um, I, I learned to love the basement, which before that point had been really scary. Um, and so one of the things that I did... One of the narratives of certainty that I constructed to help me cope with the fear and the uncertainty of the storms. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a squirrel run across a branch with a lot of leaves on it. It makes the whole branch shake. And so if I were to happen to see um, a branch beginning to shimmer in the wind, I would just convince myself that there were a lot of squirrels. I'm not saying it was smart. I'm just saying that's what I told myself uh, to like help me not be afraid of the wind that was blowing, uh, blowing the trees. Um, And I would say what I knew was not true, oh, there are a lot of squirrels in that tree, just to make myself more comfortable, just to make myself more comfortable. I do the same thing when I go fishing. I love fly fishing. Um, Fly fishing, at least in North Carolina and a lot of places that are closer to us, involves stepping into water, the bottom of which you cannot fully see. Um, And if there's anything I don't love more than storms, it's snakes. Um, And snakes, I believe, hide in water that I can't see the bottom uh, of which I cannot see the bottom. Um, fortunately, when you're fly fishing, a lot of times you're wearing waders. Now, waders, if you've ever worn them, are very thin pieces of material. But for whatever reason, I have convinced myself that they are snake-proof, right? And so I feel fully confident. I could do anything in a pair of waders. I mean, they're just bulletproof. They do just everything. If I were a superhero instead of a cape, I would have waders. Like, they're just the source of my strength. They're my exoskeleton, right? I will get in water that otherwise would unnerve me because I know I'm safe because I'm wearing my waders, right? It's a false sense of security that I've created. It's a narrative of certainty that I tell myself to help me in this environment that is unknown, is unknowable. 
we do that not just in silly ways like that. We do it in all sorts of like really legitimate ways. I, um, you know, n- not that many months ago, it was election season around here, and more money was spent to make us afraid and offer us a narrative of certainty uh, than ever has been spent in North Carolina before. I don't know if you remember these two people, Kay Hagan and Tom Tillis. I felt like both of them were always like stabbing me in the eye for my television, and this is exactly what they would do. Um, Kay Hagan wants to give you Ebola. Oh, Lord, I do not want Ebola. But Tom Tillis has the antidote. Okay, I'll vote for him. Tom Tillis wants to put your parents in a home. My parents are too young to go in a home. He doesn't care. Oh, God, what can I do? Vote for Kay Hagan. Okay, like we do the same thing all the time, right? This is what we do. We inspire fear, and once you're afraid enough of something, we can come along with a narrative of certainty that we've constructed, and we can promise you that if you buy into this narrative of certainty that we've created, your world will be safe and protected. We put our hope in all sorts of these falsely constructed narratives of certainty just so we don't have to be afraid anymore. I get it. I get it. I get it in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of ways. In our life, when we find things that we're afraid of, we find ways to cope with it by by telling ourselves a story. The problem with that coping mechanism, as easy as it makes us for us, as easy as it makes it for us to wear that mask of self-sufficiency, uh, those narratives for us are are really bad and they're really unhealthy for us in two primary ways. One is, it's <laughs> they're false. They're false. If the tree is blowing, it may blow over, and like you can't control that. If if there's a snake and it wants to bite you, your waiters are not going to do much about it. If you're going to catch Ebola, Tom Tillis is not going to be holding your hands, and when you have to take your parents to a home, Kay Hagan's not going to pat you on the shoulder. Like, I can promise you these things. They're false narratives. By their very nature, we make them up. We make them up. There is nothing substantial there to actually protect you from the things that you fear. So they're not all that helpful in the end. They're helpful up to a point, and then after that, they do nothing for you. The second problem is, and this is where I think this problem most ultimately connects us um, in a spiritual way to this struggle, is um, if you just think about the world for a moment, the world is an awesome place. The, the more afraid you are of its awesomeness, the more narrowly you experience the world. You miss out on the other side of things because you're so afraid of it. You fail to experience that thing. When we talk about God, one of the words that we use to talk about God is ineffable. Ineffable. It's a great word. Unable to be described, fully explained, unable to be fully known or fully comprehended. God is ineffable. The problem is when, when God is ineffable, that makes God a little bit frightening to us. That's not the type of God we like to worship. We like to worship a God we can understand. So we tell ourselves, we construct for ourselves narratives of certainty, even in our spiritual lives, even in our lives of faith. Uh, we want a God that we can sort of understand in, in completeness. And that prevents us in the same way from being able to experience God in God's fullness. There is a, uh, a passage. It's at the beginning of um, a second letter to Timothy. And there's a guy named Paul who's writing this letter to Timothy. And um, it's sort of a throwaway passage in a lot of ways. It's the salutation at the beginning of a letter. Hey, how are things going? I hope you're well. Um, and so we typically don't read it because it, it's not meaty. Like it doesn't give us a a specific thing that we ourselves can hang our hat on. Um, But I think that there's a phrase in it that has really been driving me for the last few months. Um, And the the phrase is a genuine faith, which maybe more appropriately translates uh, to an authentic faith. I want to read some of it to you real quickly. Um, But just to sort of set set this up for you, 
Um, Paul is a pastor in the first century, and um, he's the one that sort of is taking the message of Jesus to people who would not have been Jewish and therefore would not have been generally in Jesus' spheres of influence. Um, He's taking it to the Mediterranean world, to the Greco-Roman world, um, around the, the Mediterranean Ocean and the Roman Empire. He's translating Jesus to a culture that would not have experienced Jesus up close and personally. And as he goes along, he's meeting people and he's, he's raising up new pastors, one of whom is Timothy. Timothy is a young man. We read a lot about Timothy in other places that um, he finds in his youth a great deal of insecurity. Um, several times we hear Paul tell Timothy, stand tall, don't be looked down on because of your youth. You know, you've got the goods, you just got to go and do it. Uh, Paul has trained Timothy. He's been following around. Timothy's been following Paul around, and he's been watching the master at work. Um, and now Timothy is off to do it on his own, and um, so much so that he he just like is crippled. He's crippled by the fear of not being able to live up to the expectations that Paul has for him. And I, I think if I could just like project my own self into him, um, I think he's afraid uh, because. When you're in a role like this, people expect you to have answers to questions you don't have answers to. Um, anyway, this is, this is how Paul handles it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. What a beautiful way um, he addresses his mentee, my, my beloved child. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day, recalling your tears, recalling your your fear, those moments when you didn't think you had what you needed, recalling your tears, how I long to be with you, how I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your authentic faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure, lives in you. Here's Timothy, who's had all the training, more training than anybody else has had. And when Paul wants to reassure him that he's got what it takes to be a pastor, Paul reminds him of this sincere faith, this genuine faith, this authentic, vulnerable faith, a faith that two people had without any training at all, his grandmother and his mother. He says, when you get into a place where you don't know what to do, I want you to rest on that genuine, authentic, sincere faith. Now, here's how I understand that. And I'm sure that all of us can read it and understand it differently based on where we come from. But me personally, this is how I understand Paul's challenge to have, a, have an authentic faith for Timothy. When I came out of divinity school, I had all the answers um, to, to all the questions um, that I had asked. And none of the questions that you ask, um, actually. Uh, when you go to divinity school, um, everybody sort of comes in differently, but everybody comes in carrying a suitcase. Uh, and that suitcase is full of, like, whatever knowledge of God you have. For me, it was mostly Sunday school, which is not a lot, let's just say. Um, and, like, one religion class in college where we, it was called God and Mammon, which means money. And we spent, I'm pretty sure, 90% of the time talking about money and maybe 10% talking about God. I did not have a lot in my suitcase, but I had a lot of assumptions uh, things that I had sort of imagined in sort of the course of my spiritual life. So you take that in, and your first year in divinity school, they have you put your suitcase up on the bed and open it up, and they look in it, and they're like, ah, take it all out. And so for your first year of divinity school, you take everything out of your suitcase. 
And then at the end of their first year, you're like, I believe nothing. Like there is literally nothing in my beliefs box. What am I going to do with this? And then you spend the next two years meticulously folding everything back up and putting it back in. And there are some things that you don't put back in because you wouldn't wear that anymore. And then <laughs> um, there's some new things that you put in that you've sort of learned along the way. And so when you get done with Divinity School, you have this nice, well-packed suitcase of God, right, that sort of explains it is a constructed narrative of certainty so that you can, like, take that suitcase and, like, like wheel it to your church wherever you go. And I thought, you know, my first day at church when I arrived um, to be a pastor, I thought, this is good. I've got every answer that's right and these people have no clue what they're talking about, and it is my job to give them all the right answers. You're welcome. Okay, but now here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. I had all the answers. I had all the answers to none of the questions that people actually wanted to know. And day one, I might have felt really good about that, um, but day two, this just deep sense of fear and insecurity set in because people were asking questions that I had absolutely no answer to, and the thing that scared me most of all um, is that I knew I didn't have an answer because I knew there was no answer. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did my mom have to die so young? Like, where's my dad now? He's dead. Like, where, where is, he? is he? Is he safe? Is he comfortable? Is he okay? I, don't, I didn't have any answers. And just like you do, when you're beside a friend who is in a place of pain and you don't know what to say to them, you say the first thing that comes to your mind, which is the last thing ever you should say, right? You know what I mean? Oh, well, I'm sure he's in a better place. Now, that's not helpful. I mean, it is for 30 seconds, and then it's not. Oh, I'm sure there was a reason for all this. <sighs> all these things that we say that actually end up doing more damage than we started. Like, I think I understand where Timothy is in this moment. I think I understand his tears because I think I may have shed a few for myself. This is what I had to come to understand. And this was not a pleasant process, but this is what I had to come to understand. I had to come to understand that if God was small enough for me to understand, my God was not big enough to make much of a difference. If my God was small enough for me to understand, and I'm a pretty smart guy, but if my God was small enough for me to understand, my God was not big enough to make much of a difference. I came right up against that same thing that we come up against all the time when we've constructed narratives of certainty to help us cope with the fear. What I had to come to understand is not just for myself, but for my ministry, for my work, is that we are invited to experience what theologically we've called over the centuries, over the generations, the mystery of faith. And the mystery of faith is that our God is both fully known, yet not fully knowable. Our God is fully known, and yet not fully knowable. I know that doesn't make any sense. That's why we call it the mystery of faith, right? There's two guys that wrote um, during the course of our church history, and these are two people that if they had, like if somebody was going to have all the answers, it would be one of these two people. Um, it was Aquinas and Augustine, and both of them, in moments like this, said, uh, Aquinas actually called it the via negativa, the negative view of God, and that is that the ultimate knowledge of God is to know that we don't know. The ultimate knowledge of God is to know that we don't know. Augustine said it more perhaps straightforwardly, if you understand God, it's because you've mistaken something else for God. If you think you fully comprehend God, it's because you are comprehending something that's actually not 
not God. There is this invitation that we have, not just to know about God, but to come to know God. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. You understand the difference? Like, one is, uh, is a head knowledge. One is a narrative of certainty that we can construct to make sure that we understand who this God is and that we can access what we need when we need it. But to actually know God is to be able to experience God in a different way. That's a mystery. That's a mystery. I want to share with you some mysteries in my life. My wife is a mystery to me, okay? We've been married for almost eight years now. I'm not sure when it happened, but we have arrived at that point in, in marriage where you can communicate without saying anything. Like, all it takes is an eyebrow or like a, uh, like, and then I just know what she means. She knows what I mean. Like, we, we know each other. She and I are, are fully known. We're getting ready to have a second child together. Like, there's, there's not much between us that we really, you know, don't know about each other. And yet, I am always caught off guard by my wife. I'm caught off guard by her beauty. I'm caught off guard by the depth of her compassion. I mean, at every corner, it's like this person that I thought I entirely knew, I realize I just don't know at all. My wife is a mystery to me. She is both fully known and yet not fully knowable. I, knowing about my wife is, is helpful sometimes, um, but really, she is so much better when she is experienced. I could tell you about my wife, and you could say, she sounds like a wonderful person. And when you meet her, you'll think, you sold her so short. My wife is, is a mystery. Sailing, sailing. I realize to go from your wife to sailing now sounds terrible, but sailing is also a mystery to me, right? I understand Bernoulli's principle. I love physics. I can help you calculate the push and the pull of the wind on the sail at any point in time. But for me, sailing is a mystery because when I get on the boat and feel the pull of the, the tiller as the rudder is straining against the water and like finding out exactly where you want the sail to be so that the boat will heel up in that just nice place where you sort of get in the zone and you're just riding it, like I can explain that. I can understand it, but it is far better if I just sort of let that go and experience it. Sailing is a mystery to me. And this love is a mystery to me. I... I've spent a lot of time thinking about love. My parents were divorced when I was in the sixth grade, which threw the word love into, like, state of crisis. Like, here are these two people who say they love me, and they say they love each other, and now they don't live together. So at what point in time do I get kicked out of the house? 18, as it turns out. But, like, you know, like, I don't understand this love. So I spent a lot of time in my young years trying to name what it is, you know, that love actually, I don't fully understand love, but I, I can experience it. And I, and it always surprises me when I think I've come to understand what love is. Like, it, it just gets bigger. When Francis was born, like, this love that I thought could get no larger all of a sudden was. And it's funny now to have the second child. Like, you know, some of you are second children. I'm very sorry. Your parents love you equally, I'm sure, but they did not prepare for you in the same way. Um, your nursery may or may not be finished a week before you're due, hypothetically speaking, right? Um, but I see the same things even at work now. This love that I thought could get no bigger sort of always finds a way to be even larger. Love is a mystery to me. Sailing is a mystery. My wife is a mystery to me. God is a mystery to me. I mean, I've got good answers. I spend all day, every day, trying to understand God in a way that I can help you understand God in a different way. But ultimately, ultimately God is not something to be understood. God is, is something to be experienced. And it's that, ex it's that experience in moments of anxiety. It's that experience in moments of our deepest fear. It's, it's experience of God that is the thing that's always going to carry us through the moments when there comes a crack in our mask. It's not just knowing about God, 
that's going to save us in those moments. It's knowing, it's knowing God that allows us to, to take that mask off to experience and not just understand. Kids, kids are really good at this, and we as adults, we've lost the ability. Um, kids are really good at wondering about things. They're not afraid to ask the why question over and over and over and over and over again. They want to know. They want to understand. They're not a, afraid of the ineffability. Everything is ineffable to them. They're not afraid of anything yet, and, and so they're free to wonder. The more we are free to wonder about God, the greater our experience of God will be, and the less well-constructed our narrative. And I know that that is a really anxiety-invoking move to make, um, but it's one that's made all the difference in my life, and it's one that I believe can make the difference in, in all of ours. So my invitation to you this morning is to, to have a little bit more wonder in your life, to take off, even if it's in your own room when no one else is watching, to take off your waders, to take off your cape, to take off your mask, um, and to just be free, to be a little bit vulnerable, to have a little bit more of that authentic faith, to wonder about the things you've never bothered to wonder about before, and instead of trying to simply understand God, to give yourself the freedom to, to experience him. If I may, that was the end of the sermon, um, but if I may, by a show of hands, have just a moment of personal privilege. Are we cool with that? Great, no one said anything, so I'm going to take that as a yes. Um, I believe that, as I said earlier, this mask of self-sufficiency is um, one of the greatest struggles that we have in our culture. In the 27519 area, we have plenty and plenty of people um, who are fully self-sufficient. They're far enough along in their career, they've got enough money, they've got a nice enough house, they've got a status that they need. They are their own support system, and they don't need anything else. Um, and that breaks my heart. Because I know when the narrowly defined, well-constructed narratives of certainty for them are no longer sufficient, um, that they're stuck. They're alone. They're anxious. We are alone. We are anxious. We are weighed down by, like, the pressure of having to keep up that facade. Pastorally, that sits on my heart. When we talk about loving well and living differently, I believe that that is an invitation for people who are fully self-sufficient to come and to experience by loving other people well and by repatterning your life in the direction of service allows us to experience God, allows us to experience the, the freedom, allows us to experience the joy, allows us to experience the, the sort of anti-anxiety that comes, that comes along with that, that knowledge of God, that knowledge, that mystery When we started 519, this is probably it'd be three years ago this summer, um, we have as Methodists what we call annual conference, which is uh, uh, annual conferencing of all the Methodists from Burlington to the coast in North Carolina. Um, we all come and we sit together, and one of the things that we do is we celebrate all the new churches that are getting ready to start. And uh, 519, three years ago, was our year to sort of be celebrated. Um, and so I walk into the room, and I have not seen this material. I did not put it together. Um, but on the table, across this entire, like it was in the Civic Center, downtown Raleigh, um, the convention center, um, are descriptions of all of the new churches that are going to start. And ours 
says, um, 519 Church, a new faith community of Apex United Methodist Church, is going to begin uh, this fall in the most affluent and fastest growing area of North Carolina. Now, if you've never been a Methodist before, you haven't been one long, let me just tell you how to torque off a bunch of United Methodists. Uh, just tell them you're in ministry to rich people. Um, for whatever reason, we have convinced ourselves that the only worthwhile ministry is to people who have nothing because those are the people that really need something. And as I walked across the room, I kept hearing people talking about how we had lost our way because this church was just looking after rich people. And I thought, well, that sounds like a terrible church. Who is this, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I sit down and like, I know like the people that were watching me like just watched the blood sort of slowly drain from my face. And I went up to the person that had written this, and I said, do you hate me? Like, you've just made all these people, when you call me up here in a little bit, everyone's going to be staring at me, daggers. They're going to be like, this is the person that's the downfall of the church. That's all right. I'm okay with that. Um, and it was awkward and painful in that moment. Um, but really, uh, we exist in a community that is one of the fastest growing and most affluent areas, not just in the state, uh, but really in our nation, one of the most well-educated. And we are, by consequence, one of the most self-sufficient. Um, and we can see that self-sufficiency in that in the state of North Carolina, we uh, here in 27519 are the least churched zip code. Hooray! Um, over 60% of people in our area here are not affiliated with the church. And by not affiliated, I mean if you said, where do you go to church on Easter? Do you know where you would go? Yes, you're affiliated. I mean, we're not even talking about like involved, invested, and connected. Over 60% of our people can't answer where they would go if they just decided to go on Easter. Um, because we don't need, we don't need church. We don't need it. We're good to go. We don't need God. We got this thing figured out, right? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Like, I don't need a community of people. I've got, I've got all these things figured out for myself. I certainly don't need a church in case something goes wrong because <laughs> I'm good to go, thanks. And you're just going to ask me for all the things that make me self-sufficient, so I'm certainly not going to give those to you. Right? We tell all sorts of things, right? It is where we are. Uh, this week, perhaps you saw the, the post, someone finally did the math, and we here at 519 um, are part of a family of faith communities that is the ninth fastest growing United Methodist Church in the nation. Ninth fastest. From the five years that they used up until 2013, uh, we grow by percentage of average worship attendance um, at 30-some percent, which makes us ninth on the list. Uh, and in large part, I will say, due to the work of you guys here at 519. Um, in the article, it says that growth is not the goal. Growth is the outcome. And all week, as people have been emailing me snide remarks about what it means to be the fastest growing, um, we all keep saying the same thing, and that is that, oh yeah, we know growth is not important, and growth is not the goal, and that's, there are kids in here? That's junk. <laughs> that is just, that is a lie. That is a lie. Um, if, if you lived in a town where over 60% of the people were impoverished and had no food, and there was a food bank in that community who was able to provide more and more and more food and became the ninth fastest growing food dispensing organization in the United States of America, everyone would look at them and say, oh, 
They are doing such wonderful ministry. Friends, I believe that we are doing just that type of ministry. We are ministering in a community or a group of people who are starving for the good news that Jesus Christ brings. We might not be handing out cans of food. When we talk about loving well and living differently, this is exactly what we're talking about feeding people. Finding people in those moments where they become cracks and fissures in their mask of self-sufficiency and providing for them a place where they can come and land, a place where they can come and hear the world is not imploding, a place where they can come and belong, a place where they can come and have family, a place where they can come and begin to help other people see that exact same thing. Growth can be manipulative. Like, you can grow by offering people Twinkies. Like, I understand that. If I thought that's what we were doing here, I'd quit, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. And by quit, I don't mean, like, stop doing that, slap on the wrist. I mean, just stop. But people are hungry, and I think we are feeding them food that is so worthwhile. It is the bread of life. Growth, to me, if we're not growing, we're not doing our job. Plainly and simply. Plainly and simply. I don't know what our next step looks like here. Um, but we have, from the, since the very beginning, we've talked about ourselves as a movement. And movements either move or they are not movements. Right? They either grow or they die. Um, I think that a building, some self-sufficiency, right, is maybe a part of that. Uh, but that is not the answer to our question. Maybe a part. What I'm wondering is, who are we... Who are we not feeding right now, and how could we feed them? We started talking about uh, maybe starting a a Sunday night worship service, Uh, maybe not even in a place, maybe just online, but a way of feeding people who are never going to come to a church to be fed. Uh, We've talked about what it might look like to start a missional campus. Right now, we work with an organization called Church in the Woods. Uh, They worship just with homeless people. Like, there are homeless people in our area. We hide them well, but they're here. Like, what would it look like for us to have another place that's worshiping like 509 on a Sunday morning, except you're standing next to someone who is literally not self-sufficient. Like, what would it look like for us to have a missional campus like that? Or, I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. But I can promise you this. We're going to keep feeding people. We're going to keep feeding people. This mask of self-sufficient that we wear, it is just so heavy. It is so hard to carry. You know it because my guess is you, like I, have worn it for far too long. We, by loving well and living differently, can continue to be a group of people who are helping folks carry that fear, carry uh, that anxiety. Now, I have preached for like a good 40 minutes um, now. You're welcome. I'm not going to be here next week, so I got to get two sermons in one. Like, that's how this works. That's how this works. Um, But we're not going to end there. I would like for us to end with just a time of prayer. Um, And it is my hope, y'all can come on out if you're back there waiting for the last 30 minutes, I know. Um, I would like for us in this time of prayer um, for it to be both a response to the invitation and a response to the challenge. A response to the invitation to sort of take that mask off, um, to put yourself before God in a way that doesn't seek to just know about God but to truly know God. And maybe now is not the best time for you to do that. Um, But I invite you either here or later uh, to find a place where you feel like you can get down to that experiential type of place to to not just know God, but to have that sort of relationship that we talk about. I would also invite you to respond to the invitation, um, to be a part of a big old family of people 
who are feeding others the bread of life. I mean, you got people in your life, I know you do, who are telling you, this mask of self-sufficiency is so hard to wear. They don't say it like that, but that's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. Um, How is it that you could help feed them? How is it that you could help feed them? So I'm going to invite you, um, if you'll just close your eyes, that way the next thing that I'm asking you to do won't be awkward for anyone. Um, Even if you are not a a praying person or this is you don't want to pray, just hang out with your eyes closed for just a moment. I want to invite you to, to open your hands. You can set them on your knees. You don't have to hold them in the air or anything like that. You just open them because open hands are a posture of receptivity uh, where you're asking for help from someone. Uh, Can you help me with this? Um, I'll receive this thing that you're going to give to me. Um, Closed hands are the sign of those who are self-sufficient and need no help. And so just with our hands open, uh, I'm going to offer a prayer for us now. Um, And then Kevin is just going to start singing. I want to give you some space uh, to sort of pray for yourself and with yourself. Um, And then he'll invite us out of that and we'll prepare to head out. So with our, with our hands open, uh, Lord, we just in, invite you. Uh, we invite you into our lives. We invite you to feed us with the things that we can't feed ourselves. Lord, we confess to you those times and places in our life when we have said we've got enough and we don't need anything from you. Uh, we also recognize that uh, when people started getting fired and when the housing market was crashing, um, that church attendance swelled uh, all around, all around, because we finally realized Uh, that we couldn't do it on our own, and we had to find one outlet for it. Lord, may we not wait till a moment like that, but now with our hands open, Lord, may we receive you into our lives, not fully knowable and yet fully known. Lord, we pray um, not just for knowledge of you, but for an experience of you, that through the mystery of faith, we may come to know you more profoundly uh, than ever we have before. Also, Lord, with open hands, uh, we prepare ourselves to be generous people, to be loving people, to be giving people who serve up the bread of life uh, to those who are starving, uh, to our friends and to our family and to our coworkers um, who who need to know um, that it's going to be okay, even if they don't have all the answers and all the solutions. And they may never find their way into a place like this, uh, sitting in chairs next to us in worship like this. Uh, But Lord, may we be for them church. May we be for them family. May we be for them a word of good news, a word of hope, a word of relief, a word of peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that we try so diligently to gain on our own. Lord, with hands open, we ask you, we ask you to be our God. Lord, we are tired of being our own hero. We're tired of wearing our waders and our capes and our masks. Lord, may you become for us our hero, um, our savior, our provider, our strength. Lord, may you be for us Um, what we know we need, but have yet to ask for. Amen. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and